All right, welcome to the Lean Change Management Podcast. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you're obviously watching the new video portion of it. Um, I'm here talking with Paul Gibbons, who was the first um, uh, person who launched the podcast originally, I guess it was uh, almost a year ago. So Paul's the author of The Science of Successful Organizational Change and a couple more books, Reboot Your Career and Reboot Your Life. And uh, we had a great time last time. So we, um, much like my other podcasts, it's, it's live and unscripted. So for the three or four people I met at conferences that said, your audio really sucks, don't you do any editing? No, I don't. It's a conversation. That's the point. Let's get the ideas out. Let's have a good conversation. And um, let's not worry about perfection in the ums and ahs. So welcome, Paul. What's, uh, what's new with you over the last year? Ah, what have I been doing in the last year? I've been doing some public speaking, actually, uh, much more of that and much less, much less consulting. I, um, I, uh, I've been giving talks on business ethics. I've been giving talks on, um, next week I'm giving one on artificial intelligence and the, and the ethical risks of, of that. So, uh, yeah, life is interesting in that respect. I get to do a lot of different things. Excellent. Yeah, I saw some of your new uh, snippets of your keynotes that were that that you posted up to your site, um, particularly the one around uh, "We all suck at behavioral change." <laughs> <laughs> Ever the provocateur, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was at Microsoft's Distinguished Authors Program, so I was very pleased. I don't consider myself in the same category as all with some of the big New York Times bestselling authors. Certainly not in terms of. Um, of sales, but Microsoft, someone at Microsoft really liked it. And I was alongside Ariana Huffington, who was the week after, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, some other famous students the week before, I can't recall. So anyway, I was really honored to do that. And the Microsoft cam- uh, campus is kind of like being in a candy store for me. I mean, I'm a computer uh, geek uh, from the 1970s. So Microsoft's growth has been um, parallel to the growth in my midriff, actually. Then they've grown almost at the same pace over the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very cool to go to the campus. Uh, I, it was in Microsoft's research center. So mm-hmm. anyway, there you go. Mm-hmm. So um, the behavior change, uh, it's always an interesting topic for me because people, people that uh, I guess come from more of a traditional change background say, say the right things out of the textbook that you know, we change culture by changing the behaviors. But how do you know you're changing the behaviors? And then you start to go down the path of, well, we need to, we create a baseline of those behaviors and then we measure the change in those behaviors and then we measure the new state of those behaviors. That sounds and, sensible enough. And, and, and yeah, it sounds great when you say it in a tweet. Um, the challenge becomes, where's the, where's the line for um, how, do, how do you measure those things? So. Uh, for me, they tend to fall into the still uh, the carrot and stick approach. So you're not doing the right behavior, so we're going to punish you. Or if you are doing the right one, we're going to reward you. What do you, what do you see when you when you're out speaking and talking to people? Well, first of all, uh, carrots and sticks don't work. So so that's a fairly well established psychological fact. It's something that we still do. I mean, people still spank children. Uh, people we still incarcerate prisoners to, to hope that we change their behavior and turn them into nice people. Uh, you know, we still have executive stock options uh, as a method of compensation, and the world uh, is still, in a sense, suffering under the lash of the behaviorism legacy from early in the 20th century. Maybe this is part of human intuition. Our human intuition maybe says if we punish some behavior, uh, 
we all, we'll get a change in behavior. It's just not, it's not true. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not true in isolation. You know, when I, when I, I use an example from parenting again, when, um, when a parent smacks a child, it's less, less a conscious decision to um, try and improve their behavior, but it's generally more out of their own frustration. Right? Uh, so maybe that's part of the legacy. When someone commits a crime, particularly a heinous crime, our instincts as a society is to punish them to some sense and some of our anger and our, and our guilt, but it doesn't change their behavior. So we're not consciously saying, oh, I'd like this person to be a better person. Because if we really did want them to be a better person and be a reformed criminal and to be integrated back into society, you wouldn't just slap them in, you wouldn't then slap them in, you know, in, in just, so anyway, a lot in the, in the, in those two worlds uh, and in the world and organizations as well, our, our, our instincts uh, lie to us about what, works about changing behaviors does that make, mm. that make any sense so. yeah it, yeah it does the um the interesting thing um between that the talk because that was part of the why we suck at behavioral change talk and uh a, a post that you recently put around you know 10 years ago if you would have went into an organization talking about meaning and spirituality and all this type of stuff you'd get thrown out and I think it's still true in some organizations today, but I, I do see a bit of a change in some behavior from some leaders where, I don't know, maybe it took a decade to realize that this, there's got to be something different out there for us as an organization as opposed to just focusing on shareholder value and, and, and all these other types of things. So there's kind of a, almost a change in stance or mantra, I guess, which I guess you could say is some leaders have changed their behavior, but maybe they're just sick of the same old buzzwordy bullshit that's been propagated over the last 10, 15, 20 years. And, and they've got to get a little more raw, a little more simple and, and clear with their language. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's a bunch of things there. I mean, there's been a shift, certainly a huge shift in the last 20 years. Uh, the whole concept uh, of sustainability and business sustainability and business ethics and corporate social responsibility. I mean, that's all really new. I mean, 25 years ago, uh, that would have been, all of that would have thought slightly weird and hippie. And, and where I live in the United States, in the middle of the United States, it still is. I mean, people still see sustainability, for example, as a threat, or any talk about stakeholders rather than shareholders as a threat. Mm-hmm. I live in the middle of fracking land. Um, uh, we don't only do fracking in Fort Collins. <laughs> there's a lot of, of drill. Mining and, and, and drilling, so that's that's one thing. I guess it changes thing in the spirituality world. Well, it was kind of a funky thing. Uh, again, twenty five years ago, if you talk about meaning at work or connecting with your purpose, or even words like the vision, vision is borrowed is is a is a biblical thing. Mission, mm-hmm. is a biblical thing. Purpose is a word that organizations have nabbed from the spiritual world. So when we, I started doing the spirituality at work stuff like 25 years ago. Um, all, all of that was kind of radical and, and kind of seen as hippie. But now there's not a, a leader in the world, I don't know, mission, vision, values, purpose, who doesn't at least have that, at least pay lip service to it. I mean, I think most are trying to do something about it, but at least they're paying lip service. That's part of the, micro, the management canon right now. Mm. All of those spirituality words have been in a sense, incorporated something into the, if you look at the global business culture, at least the Western global business culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's my observation, you know, I mean, I'm prepared to be 
and challenged if people say that. <laughs> well, I, uh, I think we're, we're convincing ourselves that that's the truth now. It seems <laughs> to be the more, I don't know, I think this is, you know, look at the cave, cavemen days when they, they put paintings on walls and shared stories and passed things down through stories from generation to generation. The more you hear these same things over and over again, the more they become the truth irrespective of evidence. So the more we keep, the more you see, I know my feeds are flooded constantly, LinkedIn, Twitter, everything with purpose, meaning, love at work, um, you know, work revolution. We're in the fourth industrial revolution. That's because you all have a bunch of hippies up there. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder. Me too. Uh, Listen, the crew that I hang with from the days that I ran a company in the 19, in the noughties, what was that, last decade, that my own consulting firm, like 25 people, 50 associates, not small for an OD consulting firm. No Mm. way. They're really, really hippie. About as out there as you can do, they're connected to the integral movement, which has some interesting things to say, but it's very, very hippie. So that's one of the things I say in the book is that there's an intimate connection, I think a very close connection with the people I know who are great facilitators mm-hmm. and really, really dedicated in their life's work to the people side of organizations. Mm-hmm. They're great people and most of them are much better facilitators, much better listeners and much better coaches than me, but they are, up against, you know, uh, 1960s transformational psychology, interpersonal, uh, they're up against spirituality at work, they're up against integral, they're up against these things that are, you know, maybe they'll be normal in 25 years, maybe they'll be part of organizational DNA in 25 years. But to me, they look really kind of funky and hippie right now. So maybe it's my aging. But I'm, <laughs> maybe I've grown old or I'm just uncool now. Uh, <laughs> But I would, yeah, the, the chain, that, that part of the change community anyway seems to me to juxtapose with a lot of the uh, right on hippie type stuff, which I'm sympathetic to, but yeah, yeah. I'm not as closely involved as I once was. Yeah, the, uh, the agile community um, uh, tends to get labeled, uh, uh, or the whole agile movement as the hippie movement too, talking about love and how we all have to get along and self-organize and uh, everything is about people and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, there's, it's, I, I see a little more receptiveness, I guess, in the more traditional world, because I, I get more people with traditional project management change uh, management backgrounds coming through workshops and, and meeting people like that at conferences and stuff. Um, and the conversations seem to be a little bit different. It's almost like, you know, the, the professional associations that they belong to or the methods that are their favorite ones have been saying these types of messages. Um, and, and not providing a platform for some of these different conversations. So now that I see these conferences starting to talk about agile and meaning and VUCA and all these types of things that they're not new ideas, it almost makes it okay for the people who, who have those certifications and, and belong in those camps that they can talk about it now. So like those, those they're controlling the message um, to a certain degree, which I guess sounds a little paranoid. I don't have my tinfoil hat on, but um, the uh, it just seems different. The conversations seem to be coming from a different place nowadays, and maybe we're shaping our own truth. I don't have a philosophy background or anything, so that could just be a whole bunch of nonsense, and, and that, <laughs> that sound could be people closing their laptop lids right now. But 
You know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of the harder edge stuff now. I mean, um, one of the things, so, I mean, you and I have talked about the, I think the progress that the world has made. Well, I mean, you're cautious. Uh, you're worried about how much people are paying lip service to it and how much people are actually doing it. Sensible, mm. sensible, sensible concern. Um, it's a question that we have to ask ourselves, though, is whether the lip service precedes the actual uh, change, whether businesses say, paying lip service to green business and saying we want to be sustainable and our people are our most important assets, which is obviously a yeah. much ridiculed phrase. No, but it's an interesting question to ask is about whether that precedes material change. I mean, whether that's the first step in the road. Mm. I mean, I think there's the first words in the Bible. I don't know. I don't read the Bible. I've been 40 years, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, in the beginning, there was the word. So anything that we manifest in the world, we, we first have to speak it, we first have to say it. Mm-hmm. And that's both, I guess, a personal thing that we do to commit to a change, but it's also the way we engage people to play in our sandbox. So it's easy to say in my world, in the sustainability business ethics world, it's easy to say, oh, well, it's all greenwash, it's all BS, and they're just talking that, and they just want to you know, gussy up their annual reports with a little funky language. Mm-hmm. Yes. And... How else do people change? I mean, how else does change happen other than people first committing to it verbally? I mean, I'm a big, as you heard, as you heard any of my talks about the gap between what people say and what people do is a huge thing. Yeah. Huge, 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 huge thing, right? It's, it's, it's true for obesity. It's true for reform of our public our institutions and our thing. It's true for change in organizations. It's true for personal change. It's true that gap between what I want and what I'm actually able to do between thinking and action. You know, I think that's the, I, I think, you know, I don't know, I don't know how to describe that in terms of, I think it's one of the most important things we have to worry about as a society and as, as individuals. But then how else do you change? You know, you obviously commit to it verbally and in language and in some kind of, some kind of way like that before you actually materially can change behaviors or bring people along. I don't know. What do you think about that as a hypothesis? I, don't know. Hmm. Um, I, I think there's, um, Part of it, like you mentioned, is just how how the world has changed around these organizations now. Whereas, you know, maybe 20 years ago, they had a little more control over their destiny and they might have had a little more control about shaping the market that they're in. And now, you know, 14-year-old kid in their basement can take down an established industry. So there's a bit of a, a, a transformational state of um, not being exactly sure where we're going as an organization, but not being able to say we're not sure where we're going. Um, one of uh, um, Peter Sito, who's the president of uh, Tangerine Bank, wrote a book called Weology. And uh, one of the stories in his book is around when you're at that level of leadership in an organization, you can't not know. And if you don't know, you can't say you don't know. There's a certain level of uh, certainty and a certain level of um, uh, perception you have to put out there when you're in that top leadership position. So on one hand, we're, we're kind of talking about vulnerability and talking about meaning and talking about uncertainty and, and, and how disruptive the marketplace is today. And on the other side, it's still perpetuating that same leaders know everything. Leaders are certain about where they're going. We have a solid strategy. We've got a solid direction. And as a whole society, I think we're in the middle of all of that, that changing nowadays. Oh. 
Yeah, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, first of all, Donald Trump, for example, is the most certain person on the planet. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and someone whose views on things seem undisruptable, although he does change them from time to time. He's changed his point of view on, on a bunch of things. But when he changes them, he's just as certain as he was before he changed them. And in other words, he's just so. And, and that kind of certainty looks like good leadership in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. Uh, it, it does. And it's partly, you know, a human psychological frailty is that we crave, you know, we want leaders in a sense to make sense out of things, to make meaning out of things and to provide certainty in times that are uncertain and, and, un, and uncertain and unclear. And where should we go and where are we now and what's the right path? Mm-hmm. So a part of that is, um, is what we want. I did it uh, when I was back in my hippie days, I did a very deep workshop and facilitation a five-day facilitation, advanced facilitation course. And the guy used a lot of uh, techniques from the 1960s, uh, um, uh, dynamics techniques and some gestalt psychology. And he sat there at the beginning of the group. The group began, it was 10 o'clock or whatever it was. And he just sat there. And he sat there silently, just kind of, you know, in his own little Zen zone. And someone says, why don't you do something? And he said, what do you want me to do? <laughs> And I get, after that explosion, someone says, well, show us some leadership. What are we going to accomplish here today? And he said, well, well why should I lead? Um, and, and, and his whole approach was to create, and this boy did this explode, uh, was to create uh, ambiguity and uncertainty and for him to refuse to be that all-knowing, all-sage, this is where I'm going to take the group and this is what we'll accomplish for the next five days. Mm-hmm. And what the group was there to learn was about the human need for we all wanted, you know, tell us what we're going to do. Yeah. And instead he threw back a responsibility back into us and said, you're all here. What should we, what should we do? Mm-hmm. How would you lead? You know, it, well, it was so powerful. I mean, everybody was sent into orbit. Everybody was triggered. <laughs> <laughs> it was really the funniest thing to ever see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people started going into child mode. Someone was like, can I go to the bathroom now? You know, and, <laughs> and, and then some people tried to take an authoritarian stance and then the people in the group would say, well, who the fuck are you? You know, you're not the facilitator that we're paying money to be here for this advanced facilitation course from someone trying to take control. And mm-hmm. so it was just, it was just an incredible, uh, incredible psychological cauldron. So anyway, I, I, why, why did I relate that story? I relate that story because uh, we think that leaders want to take the pain away, the pain of uncertainty, and we want them to provide something which is, you know, is not there. I mean, it's ephemeral, right? You know, so the, you know so if, you, if you pretend that things are certain in an uncertain world, you're a moron. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's, I guess, my view on uncertainty and leadership. So how, the question for the leader is, how do you build trust without this pretense of certainty yeah what do you what do you want you know what is the what do you want people to observe in you Mm -hmm. assessments do you assessments do you want people to make of you to say i trust this guy i'll follow this guy without putting on this kind of show Mm -hmm. that you and i are talking about yeah that makes sense yeah and uh, some of the the stories that i've seen is uh one of the practices I like to use a lot is uh, lead called lean coffee. So it's a, a structured way to have um, what is what starts out as an unstructured conversation. So you get people in a room talking about a theme, but the attendees drive the agenda. So 
Um, one of the organizations I'm working with, they call them coffee corners. So, so Isn't that like, it's like open space or something like that. Or it, yeah, that? yeah, yeah. It's sort of so. So, um, you know, leaders come into a room, uh, and it's open to anyone. So, junior developer, managers, whoever, anybody who wants to come in to talk about the the transformation, whatever the change is, they write down the questions uh, on on stickies what they want to talk about, and the group votes for it. Uh, and whatever gets the highest votes, they talk about. And then that's where the leaders, they listen to what's going on. So it's a way that they actually find out uh, and they, they can put their fingers on the pulse of the organization. And um, one enterprise that I've been doing some work with on and off the last uh, year or so, um, that, that's exactly what they do. They have a regular rhythm of doing these, what they call coffee chats, and they get 25 to 30 people every time. And the CEO hosts them and listens and doesn't talk. And when he feels there's a safety problem, um, he's like, no, keep going. I want to hear what this real problem is. I need this information because I can't lead without it. I have to know what's going on. Um, whereas when we get stuck in, in change communication, it's usually us, the change people that curate the questions and create safety for the leader to not look like they don't know what's going on. And he's there um, asking people and pulling information out. So I was, I was uh, talking to the, the executive coach and I said, what? You know, I've been doing some work on and off for a year. What's the what's the secret sauce? Like, why why is this happening in your organization when I don't see it pretty much anywhere else, especially in the financial sector? And uh, she said, "Well, the 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 underlying trigger for this whole thing was the Panama Paper scandal, for one." So Did that which scandal? The Panama Papers. Oh, that was the uh, the the release of of the Panama Papers. A lot of people story money offshore. A lot of yeah. So this organization wasn't involved, but they were named um, right. in, in the media, um, yeah. and there was no evidence to, to support that. But the CEO, she said the CEO's um, mom called him up. Are you one of those guys? And apparently just you know, hit, him, hit him right in the heart. So there's, there's, there's the heart part of it, and the head part of it is um, the, they're accepting that uh, – the way that this transformation is going to work is by the leaders actually uh, doing check-ins, being vulnerable, talking about how they're going to um, create more safety at work and actually living the message. And the third part is the wallet. The amount of money they're investing in this transformation is substantial. So they've got kind of the, the three-headed monster that's all aligned in the right way. Mm. And um, for me, that, you know, that was pretty interesting, but the, that uh, lean coffee technique, that's how we have those raw conversations. They don't happen through town halls and push-based communication. It, it's got to be that stripped-down raw dialogue that is going to, I think, create safety for the leaders to say, you know what, I don't have all the answers. I need information from, from you guys. And it's going to, I think, prove to people boots on the ground that uh, the leaders are actually investing in this. Hmm. Hmm. And that takes the, that takes a courageous leadership move because they have to step out of that, that yeah. role, if you will, expose themselves to the vulnerability, of, um, expose themselves to the challenge, expose themselves. Hmm. And the time commitment too. I mean, they're recognizing that this, this um, is not a, an annual change project that we're going to run with the schedule and the budget. They've already been in this for just over two years, I guess, and, and, and they're expecting another three or four easily. Used to send, used to send me into orbit. Because my organization was a bunch of change people and coaches, so everything had to be done the way you described. 
Mm. I mean, everything. Buying a printer was like a three-week kind of workshop trying to decide what kind of printer we were going to buy. <laughs> I'm exaggerating slightly. Mm. But, um, uh, but I think it did take us three weeks to get a printer. But, um, uh, uh, so um, everything had to be really high engagement. And I was a, a leader, perhaps, you know, in the traditional mode, much more in the traditional mode than most of them would have wanted. Mm. And I thought, it was kind of this internal dialogue. Would once in a while someone just do what I ask, please, without you know, and uh, and 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 thinking that all of the involvement work that I was doing, all of the participation, all of the democracy, and all of that kind of stuff, which to me felt enormous, like it was an enormous commitment of time. Like five, you know, when when would they think about running a uh, some organizations like have an offsite, half day offsite, one day offsite? Our kind of standard mindset there was like a five-day offsite, mm-hmm. which for me felt like we got consultants in the room. We ought to be with clients and billing. I used to add up. Let's see, we've got fifteen of us in the room. It's going to be five days. That's seventy-five person days. At uh, three thousand dollars a day is okay. Uh, we're spending. <laughs> I anyway. But um, so what felt to me as the leader is very high involvement and high participation and high democracy. Mm. To them, felt like I wasn't letting go enough. Mm. Attention, uh, like they wanted more, more control, more authority, um, and so eventually they wanted to do holacracy. And mm. uh, this was well, good, so ten years ago now. They're like, we want to do this holacracy thing, and you know, there was a, a bit of a. I, I, I mean, I didn't. I mean, I owned all of the company, so I didn't really want people decision making decisions with my livelihood and my welfare uh when i had a bigger financial stake in the company than then mm-hmm. um and then i also didn't see the wisdom in having everybody at every level having a weak and equal say in how the company would run mm-hmm. and i also didn't see holacracy as that new which is which is also true um, even though it's quite an ingenious formulation of it's an, uh, an ingenious mishmash of various things but it's not that new and something like that so there's a lot of tension in the company as they called upon me to release control to which you know i'm far from autocratic right and i'm not a sort of trump-like kind of guy so from my point of view i was always involving always communicating and everything like that and from their point of view i was like too too autocratic so there was a tension certainly a tension there um and i guess that's part of the leader's journey is uh find that right balance between providing people the clarity and the simplicity and the direction and the plan and then also letting go enough so that you get the wisdom from the group and you get the involvement creativity and participation of the group but rather than a bunch of sheep yeah that's that beautiful dynamic that i'm sure you explore all the time with your customers yeah yeah i find when there's a good mix of personality types on the leadership team they can actually get to that because there's always going to be the I need the standards and the rules and the process and the checklists and all this type of stuff for me personally, then there's going to be the more uh, people first type of leaders. Then there's going to be the creative, let's go at a hundred miles an hour, change whenever we want type of leaders. And I think we need that natural uh, push and pull at that leadership level. Um, And I've experienced that a lot. So the uh, uh, last week at that, the company where I I told the story around the, um, the leader whose mom called him, we we're doing a retrospective on um, an intervention we'd done six months ago, and one of the they, we got to the end of it, and it was high energy and really positive. And one of the leaders 
kind of pulled everybody down a little bit that, well, we don't learn from our learnings and we repeat the same things and blah, blah, blah. And you can feel the whole air getting sucked out of the room. Then the head of transformation, um, you know, I was the facilitator and uh, we had had the conversation ahead of time that that's exactly what we don't want to happen. So we want to keep the energy up. Uh, we don't not want to talk about it, but we, the purpose of this one is to uh, close the book on the last six months and, and open up the next chapter. So let's leave on a high note. And um, so as the facilitator, it was more of a, yeah, great points. Thank you. So turn it over to head of transformation. Can you close us off while, while we um, move on to the next thing? So the retrospective, in a sense, kind of just took on a life of its own. It yeah. was a piece at the end. There was a refusal of the participants to want to close out by finishing the retrospective. Yeah. And by moving on and by starting something new and by declaring that finished. Yeah. Um, and you were paid to run the retrospective and then hand over mm -hmm. the head of transformation to say, okay, and here's the new, here's the, the new world. Yeah. And he, he reeled it back in. So it was a natural bookend on, uh, we had, uh, I wrote about this on, on my blog. We had 200 uh, leaders in the room. We did a Lego serious play session to explore what does the future look like where these three main business problems don't exist? So it was an exercise in how do we create our own future? Um, the idea being that uh, if we can think about that future state where the problem doesn't exist, it's going to, our brains are naturally going to think about what are the things we can do to make that real. So this was a retrospective to close the end of that part, uh, to close that off over six months and see what did we learn from it? Um, what happened and what are we going to try next time? Interesting. I mean, there's a certain, um, again, this is going back to the deep psychodynamic stuff that I did like way earlier in my career and something like that. There's a natural um, human resistance to endings. Mm. Um, and uh, you can kind of psychologize it and sort of semi-pathologize it or something like that. But a lot of human beings do a couple of things in endings as, a, as an ending is coming. Mm some relationship they'll either rush for the door so they'll either guillotine the thing and not want to be in that energy of let's close this down let's complete this let's do all the work that we need to do and then let's open it up they'll just hustle it which is which happens a lot or they'll do what this group was doing which is we don't want this to end again we're not done there's more to there's more to be he said and i remember i did some therapy in the 19 oh, it was a long time ago now 25 years ago in the 1990s, and I've been with this dude for a year dealing with some stuff or something like that. And, uh, you know, one session I said, you know, I wonder, you know, very hard, very hard for me to say this actually, which is an interesting psychological thing. Is like, I think we should stop this, you know, therapy. I think I've done enough over the shit. So, um, in a more respectful way than that. <laughs> and he said, okay, we can end. And then I went like this I got up out of my chair and I walked right for the door. I started to walk through the door and he said, can we just do a little more um, work? And he said, you know, we've been together for a year. So a beginning, a middle and an end would be, there's a beginning phase and the middle phase where you do the work. And then there's an ending phase where we, mm -hmm. you know, in a sense, tie it up. But my energy was, first of all, very hard to say I want to end. And then secondly, once I said I want to end, I want the fuck out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Not being in that space of ending or closing or completing or, or right. whatever, disengaging. So, I mean, there's a level at which you could do a lot of. There's a level at which the, I don't. I don't work in this in this place anymore. But mm -hmm. which the psychology of organizations, the psychology of groups, 
the psychology of people becomes like really a, an interesting, curious phenomenon in its own, in its own right. Yeah. You probably share that. Like, what's going on right now? Like, why are people doing these weird, like, what's this behavior? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that ending is, is what creates that, um, that more raw conversation. Well, it creates a space for something new to come in, right? You yeah. Just it up yeah. with all the shit from before. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't have novelty. You can't have creativity. You can't launch anything else with all this unfinished business, at least. That, yeah. That's my theory of change anyways. You can't, you can't um, start change on something that's incomplete. It's unfinished. It's, yeah. yeah. The, the, the ending is that, is that next foreign element. So as the, the change is arcing, we think it stops here and then there's some change or intervention and then it continues again. It's sort of, uh, hopefully this comes through okay on the camera, but as it's coming down and we're in that ending part, the next thread is starting to spawn up and we're crossing yes. over yeah. a little bit. And then there's that messy area in between where our brains want closure. We want the certainty of, yeah. did we do the right thing over the last X number of months or whatever time horizon we were talking about? Yeah. But everything around us is different compared to where, where we were at you know, six months ago when we did this, uh, uh, this, this intervention. So there's that like messy spaghetti part as we're transitioning from a new thread of reality. And um, those are the exciting parts for me because that's where the meaning gets attached, right? Everybody goes back to their desk on Monday morning and they've got their pile of emails about, hey, the production deployment over the weekend turned to shit and can you do these reports and stuff? So we get sucked back into the daily reality. And these ending rituals, I like to call them, is we've got to bring, we've got to establish those types of rituals to give people's brains a break and to make sense of that whole environment. And yeah. that is going to come to people who are, um, I like to call them the movers. Those are the ones that are going to um, want to spend the extra time and energy to make the change work. But they need that, that, that different ritual to, to go through the, the death and birth of, of whatever the new thread of change is, which I find fascinating to watch. It is, it is fascinating. And sometimes the ending energy is that not everything is going to be, you can't tie a bow on everything. Yeah, you have to be satisfied and complete with the fact that it's incomplete is the distinction I use with people. I'm okay with the fact that it's, you know, in a sense, not okay. Or I'm finished with the fact that it's not finished. Or I'm finished with the fact that but it's time for something new. It's time to birth something new. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, which, is, which is interesting. So, so tell me um, a little bit about your 2017. What's that going to look like for you? So it is going to be focused on the, uh, the global network. Um, and this, this network is, uh, I did the first in-person meetup a couple of days ago. Oh, cool. And uh, the people who have become facilitators of, of my workshop uh, have been spreading the ideas all over the world. And we're launching a, a global network that helps people get their changes unstuck. So one of the things that bugs me about um, conferences and meetups uh, in discipline-specific camps is they've almost become coping mechanisms. So I go to an agile conference so I can hear other people tell me I'm not crazy and it's my stupid clients that don't get it. And that just, it makes it worse because it reinforces. Well, partly there's some value in all that though. Oh yeah. If you're a a facilitator doing deep work or a psychotherapist doing deep work, you need a place to go, your own community as well, where you can kind of like, oh, difficult, oh my God. Yeah. I think it's swung too much on the, they, they start to become places Maybe. where you can go to just complain about stuff and 
Um, we want this network to be about um, helping people get unstuck. Sometimes people, they just need a small idea to get past yeah. it. They don't need a big method or a tool or a framework. They just need to bounce an idea off a, a diverse group of people who aren't inside that same system. So we're trying yeah. to, um, I guess, glue together the, the Agile, the OD, and the change communities um, by offering in-person meetups all over the world plus uh, virtual ones. So my focus is going to be on extending that, that uh, professional association. That's cool. That's a big game. You know, that's a much bigger game trying to create a global community of practice. If you want to use that jargon um, mm -hmm. among people, uh, that's a bigger game than I'm going to sprinkle some agile pixie dust <laughs> yeah. uh, on, on this organization. Yeah. Um, so that's quite a challenge there. And then uh, you think in other books or are you gonna the book? Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah, yeah. One of them. There's enough content for the next one. Um, so I've already put out a first chapter teaser, uh, but I'll probably end up rewriting it. So I've just been stockpiling stories and ideas over the last couple of years since the last one. Um, so the last one was very much a lean startup approach, write a chapter, push it out there, see what happens. This one is a little, um, more uh how are these the, the first book was more or less um a bunch of ideas waiting for a story yeah to weave through it yeah. and this one is more a whole bunch of stories trying to figure out yeah yeah yeah. So is, yeah is it a collection of short stories or or what is it what's the lesson so that's a cool distinction actually yeah. a very cool distinction i tend to write for the here's a bunch of ideas and how can i illustrate them with stories mm. but if you i can definitely see there's that more you want to call it organic approach. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely starting another one. Um, I'm concerned, as you'll hear if you listen to me, I talked about the, the distance. Oops, what's happened there? Uh, with the distance, we seem to have traveled from the world of facts. So I was traveling on Halloween with um, another parent uh, in the cold Rocky Mountain Halloween night. And uh, we were talking politics because it was October the 31st. It's like a week before the election. In the US, and uh, the guy said, Oh, you know, Hillary Clinton is uh, terminally ill. And this guy's not a, he, you know, he's the one of the three swing voters in the United States. It's not ideologically committed. And it's quite funny in the United States, they have this very polarized electorate and something like that. And only there's, they all talk about only a small swing vote in the middle, yet their elections take like two years, mm. which is extraordinary. Anyway, so uh, this guy said, I said, Jude, you want to fact check that, right? You want to go on Google and see, like, is she terminally ill or what are the facts or what are the evidence? And he said, the fact checkers are all bent. I said, whoa. And this stuck with me, this conversation. is like, are we in this bottomless pit where in every domain, whether it be climate change, whether it be vaccination, whether it be business change, whether it be politics, whether it be the media, whether it be education, whatever domain, we're in this like fact-free world where there's no authority. I guess we talked a little bit about where there's no authority, but where there's no authority because, you know, here's my fantasy. The decisions we make as citizens and the decisions we make as individuals ought to be grounded in the best evidence possible. If science provides the best evidence, then we ought to do what science says. Um, and, you know, this is a worrisome thing. So the word of the year for 2016 from the Oxford English Dictionary is post-truth. And we live in a world where the way it's characterized in politics is politicians say something and Trump's supposed to show. For it, he says something not 
basically to hew to the facts of the situation, but to appeal emotionally to a particular group. In a sense, he's like trying to get the crowd to go, yeah. And so he's less interested. And when he's challenged on the factuality of things, he's presented with some facts or some evidence. Like, here's a recording of you saying that. You know, <laughs> he just doubles down. For him, the, 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 the lie is in a sense somehow beside the main point. So for example, he said, Obama's the founder of ISIS. And the interviewer said, let me give you a minute. You don't really mean founder. He's using, that's a metaphor, right? You're using a metaphor to describe, you know, his relationship. You know, he created the context where this could arise. He said, no, I mean, it. he's a founder. So in a sense, doubling down on that rhetorical device uh, in order to inflame and excite people. So he's the poster child, but I think it's a much deeper problem. I think it's a problem in media, it's in science, it's in education, it's in health. Uh, and and abundantly in business too is is living in a world where can we rely on businesses like Volkswagen, like Wells Fargo? Can we rely on them to treat us honestly, to tell us the truth about their products? If it's a drug company, can we rely on them to tell us the truth about the side effects, the truth about how we tested the things? How how can we you know? Um, rely on them for our products to be safe? What can we rely on from the business world as citizens and as consumers? And again, in a post-truth world, what can we rely upon them? Because it seems to get worse every year. Again, again, a lot of my talks nowadays are in business ethics. So we have this year, we have artificial intelligence, we have Wells Fargo, and we have these pharmaceutical scams where people buy a company, jack the price by 750%, and, and people die. They die because they can't get an EpiPen. They die because they can't get this anti-toxic osmosis drug. So, so business ethics is a lot of it and post-truth. So that's my yawn, long, long TLDR on, on what I'm going to be up to in, in 2017 is I'm going to try and write that book, which is much broader than just business change. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's a certainly a, a, a world where it says I should stick to my knitting and I should write another change book and, uh, you know, uh, maybe take one portion of the book that I did write and expand it and embellish it and tell more stories about it and have it become a field booky kind of thing. Oh. And then there's part of me that wants to tackle some of the big global issues. And so post-truth, the book is going to be called Thriving in a Post-Truth World, mm -hmm. uh, is, is my attempt to deal with some of the bigger problems I think we have as a world. Cool. Yeah, I think that those, and those have much more effect on our organizations than we, than we think. Maybe, yeah. It's a lot less about just what's going on in our company because of how we're, we're bombarded with media nowadays and how yeah. our, you know, our, our lives are so completely different from business in the 80s and 90s and stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. One of the, one of, one of the uh, few advantages of getting old, and there, aren't <laughs> many, there aren't many, let me tell you, is that you do have, I was around in the 70s and 80s and uh, whether that gives me any wisdom or just a more jaundiced respect or something no we right i mean i have seen some 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 things that give me perspective like that whole thing like the sustainability is new or this whole you know you get a sense of like some things that are represented to be new aren't very new and um and some things that people are taking for granted are in fact quite new um so i guess age gives you some of that perhaps perspective Awesome. Anyway, uh, we're in the, we're in an ending we're in an ending space. So. Yes. So tell people where they can find out more about you and your books and talks. 
I have a new uh, website, uh, paulgibbons.net, um, that actually has, is just way better than the old one, but certainly there's information about the books, there's free chapters on the books. Uh, I'm trying to go multimedia, perhaps not as effectively as you do, but I've got um, lots of videos from talks that are six to 12 minutes long, some of them, some of them are a bit longer. I've got podcasts, I've got blog posts, I'm dragging up blog posts that I've written in the stuff that I've written uh, a decade ago. I wrote an op-ed on the US healthcare system a decade ago, I dragged that up. I used to write published stuff on spirituality at work. I've Drag that up out of the archives, so the mm-hmm. website is um, is going to host all of that stuff. Uh, well, it does; it's up. So, um, and uh, and then as new books come out, um, I've got another book which is called Life Mastery, which is I'm trying to decide whether to sub-publish, self-publish it, or or traditionally publish it, and um, uh, and that will be out. I haven't also decided whether I'm going to give it away or try and sell it. So, but the book is done, and so that will be coming out. Maybe in the next uh, month or two, um, if I publish it myself, if the publishing work, professional publishers get hold of it, as you well know, <laughs> it could be, be nine months, you know, before they get their mitts on it. Well, the, I don't know how long did it take from the time that you finished being changed to the time that you actually put the bookshelf. Oh, the, um, the, the publisher Happy Melly Express that I use uh, actually was a new publishing company designed to disrupt that whole publishing ecosystem. So okay. to, get, to get away from that kind of big, plan up like, front. That sounds like you. That sounds yeah. like you. So it was very incremental um, and a lot of experimentation with launching it and doing different types of media packages and stuff like this. So there was really, plus just the style. I did it chapter by chapter and, and released it the first version before rewriting it. So it was all kind of a lean startup, uh, build the audience first and then figure out the rest. Yeah. I think that's the way to do it. I'm going to try and write this post-truth book in some sort of similar way. I don't think I'll be able to do it quite the way you described, but certainly all of the interviews I do with people, I'm going to try and record them and podcast them. Uh, and then as I'm coming up with ideas, I'm going to kind of test them with people, LinkedIn, on Medium, do podcast, videocasts myself. Mm. Hey, we're doing a conference together. You want to tell people about the conference we're doing together in June? Are we still doing that? There's a big conference in Toronto in June, right? Yep, Spark the Change. Uh, we picked the date a few days ago, June 1st and 2nd, Thursday and Friday, oh. are, are, are going to be the dates. Oh, good. That's immensely better than the dates you first gave me. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right, good. So I mean, it'll, be, it'll be the third Spark. And um, small conference we're keeping it small we don't believe that the big conferences are the way to go we believe that getting a getting people from different disciplines together in the same room one stage one track uh who want to bring meaningful change is the way to go so uh this will be the third one we're moving to a new venue Uh, actually we're going to go check out tomorrow so it is going to be pretty cool good and you you expect to pack it right you said 100 people we want we're going to go no bigger than 150 Oh, okay, well, yeah. um, that's still a reasonably sized number. Um, uh, it's uh, small enough so you can do open space or high involvement, high participation stuff. Yeah. And it's large enough so the messages are reaching people. You have enough diversity perspective and yeah. all that. So it, that sounds like a decent number. Yeah. And I'm going to do something at it. We'll talk more about when, whether that's a, whatever that, that might be, but we'll talk further at some stage about um, uh, contribution I might make. I don't know if I'm going to keynote it or what you're, how you actually 
you may be so non-traditional that you don't have keynotes, right? <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about that at another stage. But I wanted to give you a chance to pitch it. Spark the change, June first and second. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks for send people to my website. Yeah, listen. Let's uh, let's stay in touch. Let's do another one of these. Um, I think probably I'd like to interview you uh, at some stage for one of my podcasts. So I'll get in touch with you about that. And uh, it's just uh, you know as often as awesome uh, talking to you as usual. Yeah, it's always a good time. Thanks very much for taking the time. All right. Cool.